For the final segment of our program, I met with clinical investigator Dr. Hope Rugo, who reviewed with me a handful of key clinical research presentations in the past year in breast cancer. And to begin, she commented on perhaps the paper of the year presented at the 2009 ASCO meeting, evaluating women with so-called triple negative or ERPR HER2 negative breast cancer, receiving first-line therapy of metastatic disease. The study compared the use of chemotherapy alone, carboplatin gemcitabine, to these same agents combined with a new type of cancer treatment, the so-called PARP inhibitors, in this case, a new agent called BSI-201. What they saw actually was really dramatic results, which is why this made such a huge splash in the understanding and treatment of breast cancer. What they saw was that response rate was markedly improved, progression-free survival was improved, and then using this novel agent in sporadic triple negative breast cancer, survival was improved. And we almost never see improvement in survival, so in metastatic breast cancer. So that was very exciting. The other thing is that, you know, sometimes we see improvements in survival, but the treatment is so toxic that no one wants to live three extra months to have that. That treatment. But in this situation, at least in the phase two trial that involved about 120 women, the additional toxicity was very, very modest. And I guess we're waiting right now for the phase three study that'll be a larger trial to really see whether or not these results hold up. And then hopefully maybe this will be available. Yes, it actually is going to be available in the very near future on compassionate use. Well, as you say, you know, it's really a ray of hope for a group of patients who in the past don't really have that kind of target that other women, I guess maybe more than 80% of women have, which is either ER and HER2. Now, another treatment that's been used for patients with triple negative breast cancer, but also other patients with metastatic diseases, the anti-VEGF antibody bevacizumab, And another paper I wanted to ask you about was presented at San Antonio in December, the so-called Ribbon 2 trial, looking at chemotherapy and bevacizumab. To me, this is another one of the major papers of the year and that it really has a practical impact on clinical practice. Can you talk about what they looked at and what they saw? So the Ribbon 2 trial was one of two trials looking at different chemotherapy agents combined with bevacizumab to see if we could see benefit like we saw in ECOG 2100 with paclitaxel. And the background of this is interesting. We worked on a trial when bevacizumab was first tested in the phase 3 setting in breast cancer, adding bevacizumab to capecitabine in patients who had bad breast cancer. And it turned out they had really bad breast cancer, and we couldn't overcome that with the bevacizumab. Saw improvement in response, but no difference in progression-free survival. So why was that? Those patients, actually, 25 about percent of them, had progressed on adjuvant therapy. So these are patients with very, very resistant breast cancer. So in this trial, Ribbon 1 and 2 both looked at capecitabine again, as well as other chemotherapy drugs, in combination with bevacizumab in a placebo-controlled trial, Ribbon 1 in the first-line setting, Ribbon 2 in the second-line setting. So Ribbon 2, which was presented most recently, was a second-line trial where women were allowed to, with their physicians, to choose from a menu of different chemotherapy agents, and then they received either placebo or bevacizumab in the second-line setting. And it was a bit risky, given our data from that first trial in the very resistant disease. 
But, you know, times change and the patient population changes, and I think there weren't very many patients like that first trial enrolled on Ribbon 2. And, of course, what they saw was an improvement in response and progression-free survival. And they were able to look at the capecitabine group separately from the other drugs. There are not a lot of people enrolled in any one single drug in the other groups. But gemcitabine was tested, taxanes, and then there was a very small number of patients treated with venerelbine. And, you know, kind of this principle we've seen in a number of different cancers where bevacizumab is used is it maybe doesn't seem to matter that much which chemo it is. It seems to enhance a lot of chemotherapy agents. What do we know about how it actually works? It's been a little bit kind of interesting how that's been discussed. Well, you know, all of the cartoons that we show about bevacizumab show that, you know, angiogenesis is critical for breast cancer growth, for metastases, and that what the antiangiogenic agent is supposed to do is prune the vasculature and reduce it so that then the cancer starves to death. But it turns out that that's probably only one and not a great way that antiangiogenic agents work, and bevacizumab is no exception. It's a potent antiangiogenic agent. But a lot of what it does is related in a different way to angiogenesis. So, you know, we know that, for example, the pressure inside a tumor cell can be a mechanism of resistance that we can't measure so that the cancer drugs can't get into the tumor cell. And we know that bevacizumab reduces that intratumoral cell pressure. There may be other immune mechanisms. And then, you know, we saw a little hint of this in the Ribbon 1, ECOG, and Avado trials, the first-line trials with bevacizumab, in that looked like Bev had its greatest effect in patients who'd been exposed to prior taxanes in the adjuvant setting. So there may be some other mechanism of reversing resistance that's yet to be understood. The last thing, which I think is really a very neat idea, is that we're understanding more about what you're born with and how that affects your response to drugs. And some work from an investigator at Indiana actually is very interesting looking at polymorphisms of VEGF. So the vascular endothelial growth factor or its receptor can exist in all of us, but depending on your genetics, it may look different. And that sort of structure of the VEGF or the VEGF receptor may affect how bevacizumab works against your cancer, and it may affect the toxicity. One of the things that's come out that we've heard in a number, again, of these other cancers, colorectal cancers, is the thought that maybe in some way bevacizumab is potentiating chemotherapy or helping in the delivery of chemotherapy to tumor cells. Do you think that's the case in breast cancer? Well, I think that it may be. I think that the idea of the interstitial and intertumoral cell pressure is really the idea where you, you know, you're changing permeability by using antiangiogenic agents. And the best data we have on that is bevacizumab, but it's clearly true of some of the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. You're changing the structure of these cells that support cancer growth, and that changes the permeability of the cancer cells. So another, what I see as a kind of paper of the year in breast cancer and a handful that I want to get you to comment on was the study looking at the Oncotype DX assay in patients with node positive tumors. We've had data out there in node negative tumors for a long time. We know from our patterns of care studies that it's, you know, frequently routinely used in patients with node negative tumors, ER positive, HER2 negative. This paper looked at it in patients with node-positive tumors. What did they look at, and what did they see? Well, it's another very interesting paper, well-chosen. And Kathy Albain actually was the principal investigator of this intergroup, breast intergroup trial in our cooperative groups. And it's an old trial. I mean, it was done 10 years ago. And the trial actually set to answer a whole other question, which one of the questions was, should you give 
CAF chemotherapy to ER ER-positive, node-positive disease. And the second question was whether you should give tamoxifen concurrent with chemotherapy or sequential. And now, of course, we learned from that trial completely changed the way many trials were done and the way most people treat breast cancer, that giving the tamoxifen sequentially was superior to concurrent. So they had all that data, and they had some samples of tumor, and you know, we really wanted to know, would the recurrence score that looks at 16 cancer-related genes in paraffin-embedded tissue, would it be able to tell us something about patients who had node-positive disease? So what they did was they went back, and of course, it's a subset of patients in that trial. It's not even half, but the patients in that subset looked very similar in terms of their characteristics and outcome to the trial as a whole, which is really important. It's still a retrospective study. So then what Kathy was able to do was to look at the recurrence score and, you know, make sure that they had enough RNA so that it was accurate in these patients and then look to see how the score correlated with outcome in the three different treatment groups. And they actually eliminated the group where patients had gotten concurrent tamoxifen because it's not going to help us since it's now no longer an accepted treatment for curable cancer. And that was really the study that changed the standard of care because I think up until that point, there were some people who were given the two together, chemo, tamoxifen, and others who were using the chemo first. After that study came out, everybody waited till the chemo was done to yes, get hormone I mean, therapy in general. The NSABP had always given concurrent hormone therapy, and they stopped the moment that data was presented, so it made a huge impact. So they went back, and I mean, it's we don't have trials like this anymore. So we can't do this kind of thing prospectively. So these women had a lot of positive notes. These were not the women who have one to three positive notes like in our practices now, because this was a while ago, and they had a lot of patients who had four or more positive notes. And they looked at, you know, TAM versus TAM plus the chemo combination, cytoxan, doxorubicin, and 5-FU, adromycin and 5-FU, so CAF. And what was interesting was in the first presentation of this data, it looked like the CAF was most effective in patients who had a higher score, just like we saw in node-negative disease. But the concerning thing about the data was that the patients who had low score did really poorly. I mean, they had not a great disease-free survival at 10 years. Whereas in node-negative, the patients with the low recurrence scores had very minimal recurrence. They did great, better than 90%, whereas these patients were, you know, barely 60%. I mean, it was a very high rate of recurrence. So then Kathy went back with the statisticians and I think did a really important analysis and published that as well in the Lancet paper. And that was looked at breast cancer-specific mortality. And that's actually really important in these trials where women were older and it was done a long time ago. And you know you can't control for what people die from. And if you looked at breast cancer-specific mortality, women who got tamoxifen who had a low score with positive nodes did pretty well, and they didn't seem to benefit from the CAF. And we've really shifted because in the past, there were so many, quote, prognostic factors in breast cancer trying to predict how well people would do. None of them were really all that great. The thing that's been different about Oncotype is it's more predictive of response, and in this case, the chemotherapy. I mean, even if it turns out that there is a high rate of recurrence, if chemo is not going to lower it, why go through that toxicity? Yeah, I mean, definitely that's the case. I think even if you have a high rate of recurrence, but chemotherapy isn't going to do anything, you really don't want that toxicity. But, you know, we have a hard time with that particular endpoint. I think right now what we understand is women who have slow-growing cancers and in the first 10 years have a relatively lower rate of recurrence tend to get less benefit from chemotherapy if they receive tamoxifen, a low rate of recurrence. And in those patients who had node-positive disease but a low score, 
hormone therapy has a huge impact. I mean, it's incredibly important. And the duration of hormone therapy now is also going to be a very important thing for those women. But for women who had a higher score, it was the reverse where, you know, it's harder to show the benefit of tamoxifen because there's so much mortality in the first few years. And chemotherapy played a big role. We still don't really know a whole lot about that intermediate group that's being studied in Taylor X, the study. But I think it was really interesting. And, you know, what we sort of taken from it is something quite different from what the trial actually showed. You know, here they're looking at this subset of women retrospectively with lots of positive nodes. What we've taken from it is something that I actually think is really important for practice. Just because you have a positive node doesn't mean you're going to benefit from chemotherapy. And that gets very much to what you were saying before. It's there are patients who have slow-growing cancers, and we've all done it. Given chemo in the neoadjuvant setting, and they start with a 10-centimeter tumor and they end with one, these are hormone receptor-positive, low-proliferative tumors. So if we could figure out, after somebody has surgery, that there's a patient who's postmenopausal, has one to three positive nodes, and a really low score, those are patients maybe where we want to be giving, you know, 10-plus years of hormone therapy. But the value of chemo is going to be very limited. And also, you know, even in patients with straightforward, you know, multiple positive nodes, or even in patients with node positive disease, I mean, occasionally, I don't know how often you see that, you have patients who are really reluctant to receive chemotherapy. And I guess this is, you know, even though in general they might receive it, this is one more sort of piece of evidence to suggest they're really going to benefit. I don't know whether it affects people in terms of actually their decision to move forward with the chemo in node positive disease. No, I think it can help. I think that when you're trying to make decisions about chemo or not in patients who have ER-positive disease, people come in sort of three varieties. One is they want to get the chemo regardless because they're very risk-averse. And then the other end is they're not going to get chemotherapy unless you have a degree of mortality benefit that we never see. Or they just are not going to ever use those drugs. But the middle group, which is the biggest, are people who really do want to have a little bit of a better idea of the risk and benefit. And I think that although these tests are not by any means the end-all or perfect yet. We have a ways to go. It really does help us analyze that risk versus benefit. You know, it's interesting. Ever since Ocotype came out, I kind of have thought about it in terms of, quote, the patient who's on the fence in terms of whether to get chemo or not. Of course, start out in no negative disease. But I keep hearing more and more about cases of people who aren't on the fence, know what they want to do, and yet the oncotype gets ordered, and then they reconsider it. You know, maybe a person who feels like, you know, they just don't want to get involved with chemo, and then they see a high recurrence score. Or the patient who feels, well, no matter what, I want the chemo, anything I possibly do, and then they see a low recurrence score, and they go, hmm. So I think what I'm hearing in practice in the negative situations is people almost routinely getting it, just to add an important piece of information to the puzzle. I think that's true that many practices will routinely get it. What we've done, which I think many people have, is to take patients where there is a gray area. The thing is that the more we know, the bigger the gray group is. And so I think that that's really where the difference is. Now, you know, do you need to get an oncotype in a 32-year-old woman who has a two-centimeter high-grade ER-positive, PR-negative tumor? Probably not, because, you know, I'm going to have a really hard time not giving that woman chemotherapy. So if I trust the grade... I trust the pathologist and the report, then I'm going to give that woman chemotherapy. But same is true if I have an older patient who has a small, low-grade ERPR, 100% tumor. I don't want the information, you know, unless the patient really wants it, because I'm going to use hormone therapy, and I don't really have validity of additional treatment.
Now, in our surveys of oncologists, since and there was actually some data that came out before from this study that we just talked about, but this was much more definitive. But we know now that it seems like about half of the oncologists right now are actually using oncotype in patients with node-negative disease, not necessarily every patient, but select patients. How about you and your practice? In our practice, we send oncotype very frequently. More than 50% of patients, I think, with node-negative ER-positive disease have the recurrence score, and it might even be closer to 75%. And again, it's these patients who have tumors where you could go either way. And it turns out a a lot of patients are like that, and no positive. Great question. So, you know, in the beginning, when the first data came out, we didn't jump on that bandwagon. But now with the newer data and really having a chance to look at it, I send the score in, again, older patients who have one to three positive nodes who I don't want to give chemo to. And it can be very, very useful, I think. It makes everybody feel a lot more comfortable. So another presentation I wanted to ask you about, and it's interesting because to me, I was just floored when I saw these data presented at San Antonio again in December. And I'm not sure that that many oncologists are aware of this, was presented by Paul Goss, looking at women in the so-called MA17 trial, which looked at an aromatase inhibitor, letrozole, after five years of tamoxifen. Now, of course, in the past, we already have known for quite a number of years that that study showed there was a benefit. But this study looked at a subset within the trial of women who presented being premenopausal, where of course you can't use an aromatase inhibitor, and then became postmenopausal during the five years of tamoxifen, maybe from chemo or just natural menopause. Can you talk about what he saw? Yes, this was a really interesting presentation. And, you know, MA17 is the study that continues to go on. It's like the ever-ready bunny. And, you know, they've been able to do something we refer to as data mining for a long time. Because when this study was first presented, its impact, I think, I don't even, we thought it was an amazing study when it was presented, but I don't even think we began to understand the impact it was going to have on treatment of patients with breast cancer and on our understanding of the natural history of ER-positive disease, which is these very late recurrences, which can still be affected by hormone therapy, and that's the piece we didn't know. So we've really gotten to extend out our hormone therapy to switch from tamoxifen to aromatase inhibitors based on the initial MA17 data, and also understand that even women who have stopped their hormone therapy who had high-risk disease might benefit from restarting it at some point within reason, you know. But what he presented at San Antonio was yet another perspective, which was of the 5,000 women who entered that trial, some of the women were premenopausal when they were diagnosed, and then they got postmenopausal. Well, the definition of being postmenopausal wasn't as strict as we would use now, because we know that if you were amenorrheic for a year, you might still recover ovarian function when you start an AI. And we see that all the time. You know, estrogen levels come back because the AI really stimulates that last little reserve in the ovary. But they didn't use that. They used the standard definitions. And they looked to see what happened to women who were premenopausal at diagnosis and postmenopausal when they were randomized to letrozole versus placebo. And the difference comparing these premenopausal women at diagnosed to the postmenopausal women was really striking. Again, this is a retrospective subset analysis, so we have to take it with a grain of salt. But the difference was so striking, I think it really hit a tone in all of us. And I, we sort of struggled with trying to figure out why that is the case, that if you're premenopausal at diagnosis and postmenopausal somewhere between four to six years and you went on letrozole 
versus stopping all your hormone therapy, there was a big benefit, even in patients with the lowest risk disease, so no negative patients, where all of the risk went away. Those patients no longer relapsed. And, you know, people think about, you know, there's also the issue of duration of hormone therapy in women who've gotten AIs from the beginning. You know, what do you do at five years? There's the issue about these women who become postmenopausal at five years. And one of the things we've heard from oncologists is, well, if, if I'm going to go beyond five years, it's not going to be in the patient with no negative disease. It'll be, quote, the higher risk patient. Yet in this study, they had almost 12% of the patients who had no negative disease have a relapse between year five and nine over a four-year period. And as you say, that went down to zero. So pretty impressive numbers. It is really impressive, and it definitely changes our impression of the original data set because, you know, when they divided out the original data set, half of the women in the trial node positive disease and about half node negative. When they looked at the node negative patients, they didn't see a survival benefit, but we did see it in the node positive patients. So we'd been thinking, well, okay, if you get five years and you had lowish risk disease, the additional benefit of adding an AI will be relatively smaller. And this sort of turned that all on its head and made us believe that you know, really, if you select the patients appropriately for risk, that you can still make a big impact, even in patients who have no negative disease. The last paper I want to ask you about in my short list of papers of the year, also from San Antonio, so many things get presented at that meeting, and they kind of like precede the journal article publication by a year or two, so the hot stuff comes out at the meetings, was a study looking at adjuvant therapy of patient with HER2 positive disease, one of the major studies, and a third analysis that came out of that trial, the BCIRG study, the only major study that looked at a chemotrastizumab combination that didn't include an anthracycline, the so-called TCH regimen. Can you talk a little bit about what that study looked at and what this final analysis showed? Yeah, I mean, we really were looking forward to see this third analysis of the data, the final update of the BCIRG trial. It was a really, I think, novel design, and it required a lot of good data from the laboratory and courage to do a trial where we dropped what we thought was our best drug in anthracycline. But, you know, we know that if you give trastuzumab to patients with anthracycline exposure, that you increase the risk of cardiac failure, congestive heart failure, and even just a weak cardiac muscle without overt failure. We know that anthracyclines increase your risk to a small degree of secondary leukemias as well. So from the laboratory, they knew that there was a lot of synergy with docetaxel and carboplatinum. So it was a reasonable thing in the metastatic setting. We know it's an effective regimen. So the data came out. The first presentation of that data suggested that ACTH was better than no H, no trastuzumab, and it might be better than TCH. So we're all like, okay, you know, those of us who did the trial with ACTH and the breast intergroup thought, okay, fine. I guess we should say that what the trialists from that study were saying was that both of those trastuzumab chemo regimens were way better than not getting trastuzumab. And their point always was, well, there wasn't that much difference. Right. And actually, that first presentation, it was kind of pushed forward early because the breast intergroup and NSABP trials had been presented. So it was earlier than they had really planned. And so, you know, we had to take it with a grain of salt. So then the second analysis, it showed that there really were equivalent in terms of efficacy, that big improvement, as we'd seen with the other trials, when you added trastuzumab to adjuvant chemotherapy, and you could safely do away with anthracyclines by using this TCH regimen. 
We also saw a difference in toxicity. We know that anthracyclines are associated with nausea and vomiting. TCH, less so. It's not gone. Some people get a lot of nausea and vomiting from carboplatin. But the striking difference really was in the rate of congestive heart failure, which was very much lower in the TCH arm compared to the ACTH arm. And even if you looked at recovery far out after finishing the trastuzumab, although the median was still in the norm, it was lower in the patients who'd gotten ACTH. So that was very interesting. Data encouraged a lot of us to use, not all, to use TCH as an adjuvant regimen. And then at the same time, we saw data from the NSABP trial where they were able to look at patients who were at the highest risk for heart failure. And so we could almost make a nomogram where we would say, well, if you're older, have hypertension on medications have a lower EF, that TCH is really a safer and better regimen for you so that we cure you but cause you to be disabled for other reasons. So then in this third presentation, all of those things held up pretty much. So same cardiac risk profile, TCH, less cardiac toxicity than ACTH. And also we were able to see just a little bit of a difference in secondary leukemia for the first time where it looked like there were maybe a few more cases in patients who got A, either with trastuzumab or not, compared to the TCH arm. It's a complicated thing to look at in that trial, though, because overall the rate of secondary leukemia is very, very low. And then what we saw in terms of comparing, the trial was designed so you looked at ACTH versus AC and TCH versus ACT, right? So both of the experimental arms were compared to the control without trastuzumab, ACT. And we saw that they both were superior to the control arm. But interestingly, this time, the TCH, there were a few more events in the TCH arm everywhere you looked at it compared to ACTH. And events in this case were recurrences. Survival was the same, but there were a few more recurrences. And if you just look numerically, there were more. So, you know, can we take anything out from that? And really, I think that it's pretty hard to take anything negative out of that data because the trial was not designed to compare the two experimental arms. And I think we have to be really cautious about comparing arms that weren't designed to be compared because, you know, none of us majored in statistics, but the statistics of a trial design are really important when we interpret the results. So I think what we can take home from the third presentation of this data is that TCH is a very viable regimen to use in patients. So is ACTH. Their toxicity profile differs. This trial didn't show that one regimen was better than another. It showed that both regimens were reasonable options. And I think that it did show that you get more cardiac toxicity when you use ACTH and that there are patients where you might prefer not to use that regimen. And Agree or disagree that in terms of clinical investigators specializing in breast cancer, that right now taking this study into consideration and all the other studies that have looked at adjuvant trastuzumab, that there's a tendency to use an anthracycline like the ACTHR in a younger patient with node-positive tumors, and there's a tendency to use TCH or some variation, maybe paclitaxel, trastuzumab, in older patients, even those with higher risk. Is that your observation? Yes, I think that is. And it's also generally my treatment practice as well, though certainly not all of my colleagues. I have colleagues who've never given TCH and colleagues who never give ACTH. Right. 
But I'm very much in the sort of direction of individualizing even within our toxicity profiles so that I do use ACTH for higher risk younger women. I think the toxicity is going to be less and I really want to use the regimen that probably has the single greatest database. On the other hand, why cause heart failure? So TCH in older women, I think particularly women who are at higher risk for heart failure who have lower risk disease. You know, we're also really interested in alternate regimens and are studying just weekly paclitaxel for 12 weeks with a year of trastuzumab in conjunction with Dana-Farber. There's a number of sites in the U.S. that are looking at that. It's incredibly well tolerated, and we've used it in women who have HER2-positive disease, smaller tumors, generally node-negative. You know, we wouldn't use it for a patient with a node-positive tumor, and it's going to be interesting to see. We're going to enroll about 400 patients in this phase two trial.